Welcome to the JLA Casks, a podcast in which we revisit Grant Morrison's legendary run on JLA, arguably the greatest superhero comic ever written, one issue at a time. My name's John, and I'm the writer and creator of Afterlife Inc. And my name's PJ, and I think I've got some trapped wind. <laughs> okay. Um, I haven't read that body of work by you, PJ. Um, um, it's autobiographical it's <laughs> uh, yeah no very current very like of the moment um is that because you ingested a a, a whole peanut bucks uh kit kat chunky before coming on air possibly without chewing yeah that's that's pretty much what happened seriously listener like we didn't have the mics running at this point but imagine imagine what i'm hearing on my end pj goes oh wait I haven't finished my pudding yet <laughs> and then right i'm done all right <laughs> like, what, what, what did you have yeah full, full gu- <laughs> i don't know how you do it pj that's that's a superpower that's never come up it's uh it's it's something i've i've been able to do for a number of years is just devour my food very quickly i've, I've got like one of those throats like some reptiles have where you just open it up and let everything go down you don't have to chew like when snakes eat those big eggs and things yeah, you're painting a, a very vivid picture right now, which I'm, <laughs> I'm not necessarily enjoying. Um, but PJ, uh, aside from like nearly nearly choking and, and doing terrible damage to your, to your innards, um, how, how have you been? What's uh, what's happening in, in the world of PJ? Oh, I've been I've been pretty good, thank you. I've I've been, you know, doing things, watching things, reading things, playing things, all that good stuff. What have you been, What have you been reading? Oh, uh, I've just started reading. I'm taking a break from my my big Pratchett reread because I just finished Masquerade. Mm. Uh, so the next book on my list is Johnny and the Bomb. But I figured if I break for October and pick it up again in November, it means that I should be reading Hogfather in December, which feels pretty perfect. Oh, nicely so, done. Yeah, so I've decided to go back to some old spooky classics for October, and I am rereading for the first time since I was a teenager, Frankenstein. Oh, wow. I've never read Frankenstein. I, I, love, really, I love it. I, it's a I was going to say, really, really stupid question. Is it good? I, I absolutely love it. That and um, Stoker's Dracula are two of my all-time favourite novels. Um yeah, they're just they're so atmospheric and evocative and obviously very of their time, but I think I think both of them are just stunning pieces of work. Is it is it particularly weird going back to the kind of core text for something that has been adapted so many times? Um no, I don't I don't find it weird. It's I find it more interesting than anything else because you can see which bits every adaptation has left in and which bits they then every adaptation leaves out and mm. things like um i feel like 
the Universal movie with Boris Karloff. If you take that, that's a fairly loose adaptation. It obviously keeps the some of the important beats, but it's it's not it's not the book. And I feel like most of the adaptations that came later were adaptations of the Universal movie rather ah. than taking the text as their starting point, with the exception of the 90s one that Kenneth Branagh directed and starred in uh, with De Niro as the creature, um, <laughs> which is flawed, but I actually have a real soft spot for. Um, they do, uh, even though it was sort of sold as sort of being this is the one that's closest to the text they do take some real liberties with it yeah they this do you closer than most other adaptations you see it's interesting you say that because i i had wondered if this was the case like um i feel nowadays like there is so much vampire literature there's mm-hmm. so much well i was gonna say i was gonna i was trying to find a way to like simple i was gonna say there's so much frankenstein literature i mean there isn't actually. I mean, let's be honest. There's a lot more vampire stuff. But yeah, yeah I, th- I think nowadays, like, I could do a Frankenstein adaptation just from what I've absorbed through kind of cultural <laughs> osmosis. You know, like, I've I've never read the book. But, you know what I mean? Like, I, I feel like I've just picked up enough to yeah. tell a version of I probably wouldn't know whether I was aping a, a direct element of the original story or just something that was in a movie or something yeah yeah i feel like there hasn't yet really been that i've come across there might well be some out there that i haven't found but an adaptation of frankenstein that does just straight adapt the book and doesn't change some of the bigger elements and things here and there um dracula i find is much the same most of the adaptations don't do the novel they deviate even again the coppola film bram stoker's dracula that is not bram stoker's dracula that's francis <laughs> ford coppola's dracula uh the closest the, the best adaptation i think of the dracula novel is the marvel comics adaptation um Ooh. they started doing it serialized in the tomb of dracula comic in i want to say the 70s that got cancelled before they could finish it and then they finished it in the early 2000s the same team um as a black and white comic it's been collected since but the version you can get now the collection is they've colored it and it loses some of the atmosphere actually in this instance i prefer the black and white version but it is a very solid adaptation and it is pretty much the novel straight up without too many changes or things so i think if if you're looking for a good adaptation of dracula i recommend the marvel comics one well, it's it's funny and good for you, PJ, for for shoehorning it back into comics because I was I was actually just going yeah you you raise a really interesting point. It's like for the longest time, Dracula, or probably even still to the present day, Dracula is a fairly major Marvel comics yeah. character. Like he's a big part of. I mean, there there was like um oh god, was it mid two thousands or mid twenty tens? There was a big X Men. Dracula crossover. Curse of the Mutants, yeah, which is one that it is not good, but I love it. <laughs> it's really <laughs> stupid, but I think it's actually a lot of fun and it feels very knowing in that way. The one thing I'm not too keen on in that one was that was where they brought out their big redesign of Dracula. They wanted to have Marvel's Dracula be distinct oh, from all the other versions of Dracula. So take it away from it, yeah. you know, the Hollywood version, for lack of a yeah, better. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So all of a sudden he's this 
big armored guy with long white hair and i don't quite like it as much and what was even weirder about it was literally the month before a dracula story had just finished in paul cornell's captain britain and mi13 book where he had the classic big cape Uh. with collar the classic marvel version of dracula which i much prefer um i'm not really sure where marvel fall with dracula these days i haven't been keeping up with it but yeah, while I'm not too keen on the Dracula design, I do enjoy Curse of the Mutants as a bit of silly vampire fun. Isn't yeah, it's weird, isn't it? Because because Dracula is public domain, um, but it's it's like in the same way that Thor technically is public domain, but because he's a mythological character. But isn't it something like Marvel had like the mighty Thor is mm. Marvel's trademark on it or how they how they've kind of said well look no this is undoubtedly our character yeah there are certain characters that's true of i think marvel have done that with all of the characters they've got that are in the public domain they've got their take on it so that's thor frankenstein dracula they've got their version of it which they have copyrighted um there's a similar thing with i believe the original bela lugosi dracula movie that version of dracula as far as i'm aware is still belongs to universal studios and is Mm. copyrighted to them because and this is a weird one so the transformers have just brought out they do these weird crossover figures sometimes they did the ghostbusters one that was a transformer that turned into ecto-1 they did the back to the future one so it turned into the delorean um I think it's Ectotron and Gigawatt. They've brought out another crossover one now, which is Transformers crossed over with Dracula. And it's a Decepticon named Draculus who turns into a big bat. But he's supposed to evoke the universal version of Dracula. And it actually says on it universal uh, on the packaging and is all incorporated there and, and trademarked to Universal. So Universal still owned that very specific version of dracula and if you want to use that you have to license it out to them but if you want to do your own take on dracula based on the stoker novel you can pretty much do what you like because you you mentioned it briefly and i know uh i know marvel had a long-running dracula comics in Mm. like the 70s um maybe into the 80s yeah 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 and it was in the tomb of dracula or uh it it is the tomb of dracula isn't it i'm not yeah okay so sorry, yeah, so it was in the Tomb of Dracula, the pages are there, but they introduced Blade. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. Although, of course, the character had many, you know, reimaginings over the years uh, and gained a new popularity with the movie. But obviously DC has a Frankenstein character. And, you know, and I know we could all be pedants and say, oh, don't you mean Frankenstein's monster? But, you know, the same... Same difference, really. Look, look, the creature is Victor Frankenstein's son. He'd share his surname. So the creature is also Frankenstein. Or, or you know, I think we can all agree, Frankenstein Jr. Yeah. <laughs> kid kid Frankenstein, we should just call him that. <laughs> um, but I know in, and to bring it back to Morrison, in Seven Soldiers of Victory, mm. which is um, an, an interesting project. I quite like it. It's, 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 um, it's a bit of an odd reading experience. But, it has its uh, fans. It's not for me. But Frankenstein is a character uh, in one of the miniseries in there, illustrated by Doug Mank. And uh, I think that's one of the best little segments, actually, <laughs> as is kind of like um, Frankenstein as a very literate um, intellectual figure who hunts 
well, I was going to say monksters for lack of a better word, but hunks like abominations across yeah. generations and stuff. I thought that was kind of fun. I'm, I'm pretty sure DC have their version of Dracula as well. It just never got the same purchase as Marvel's, but I'm pretty sure Dracula has appeared in a couple of DC books here and there. I know he was in an episode of the 80s Superboy TV series, bizarrely. Really? Wow. <laughs> yeah, Superboy befriended Dracula's son and they tried to recruit Superboy and you don't see Dracula his plane lands and you hear a laugh and mist comes out of his plane and then at the end of it it's like oh who is your father oh you know him as Dracula and it was like what do you do it was so stupid but (laughs) there is and I think I've mentioned it before but there is a um there's a JLA story called uh, the 10th circle yes uh which is a John Byrne again yeah um and it's so bizarre that it's technically comes after all the content we're currently reading by several years and yet feels like it was written 20 years before that's john Uh, Byrne style that's john Byrne style and i'm just gonna say it was uh there was a vampire in that who was the bad guy and he was very oh yeah i was just gonna i was trying to remember he had an awful name and i just had to google it to work out what it was uh crucifer Oh god, yeah, I remember that. Because he's, oh, he's, man. he's he's see he's, he's both he's both Lucifer and crosses because uh, yeah, vampires love yeah. them famously. Uh, it, yeah, I did I did not care for that story. But if you want to talk about like a classical uh, a classical vampire who basically looked like Dracula while possibly being legally distinct, I mean, there you go. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think my favorite of those stories is the old. Claremont X-Men ones where Dracula turns up and tries to get Storm to be one of his brides. That's a great one. Okay, and and that's obviously during the classic Claremont Byrne run. I, I don't think it was drawn by Byrne. Uh, I might be wrong, but it's just it's got some great moments in it and vampire mythology stuff that you wouldn't normally think of. Like Wolverine tries to get rid of dracula by just making a a cross out of his claws but it doesn't work because wolverine doesn't actually have any christian faith and dracula's like well it's not backed up by anything but kitty pride is able to repel him using her star of david because she does have faith in her jewish beliefs Ah. and i I found that really an interesting take on that idea that i don't think even really marvel have have used much since interesting and don't um i'm trying to remember what the hell they're called now but isn't there like a group of characters, anti-heroes, not quite villains in the Marvel universe, who are all the, um, you know, kind of like the classic movie monsters sort of thing? Um, they turned up in one of Mark Wake's uh, Daredevil stories. There was like Eye um, Zombie and a Frankenstein-esque and a Wolfman sort so of thing. So they've done a couple of takes on this. Uh, I think the classic one from... I think the late 80s or early 90s was the Midnight Suns, which also had Doctor Strange and Morbius and Ghost Rider involved. And then more recently, they've done the Howling Commandos, which was yes. a S.H.I.E.L.D. team made up of these monsters. And it's so weird because I, 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 I can't for the life of me remember what they're called, but I think DC had almost the exact same concept, which they were called like the Creature Commandos or the um, Monster Squad or something like that. I think it, it was might literally have been a- the Creature Commandos, yeah. Hey, check me out. Yeah, a group of soldiers, and it's like there's a Medusa, there's a there's a there's a Frankenstein, there's a Wolfman, you know. <laughs> I do like the 
uh, the distinguished competition sort of relationship that Marvel and DC sometimes have when, yeah. they're not sni- when they're not sniping at each other too much, where they will basically just rip each other off. And because they're the only two players in the game, nobody really minds. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I don't think, it's, yeah, as you said, I don't think it really happens so much these days. And I think that's a shame. Hey, we never would have got the Squadron Supreme. Exactly. You know, if Roy Thomas hadn't been auditioning to go write the JLA. Um, oh, God. And who are the, who's the, um, the, uh, oh, what's the name of the DC team, which is just the Avengers? Um, are they the Liberators or something like I that? I can't or? remember. They don't show up as often as Marvel bring out the Squadron Supreme. So, No, no, they love the Squadron Supreme, don't they? And, yeah, uh, yeah. Old Hi- and rightly so. And old Hyperion's had a... He, he's just a thing in his own right now. Well, they, they stuck him on the Avengers for a while as well, didn't they? And they just, yeah, him and Hey, we're just going to put Superman on the Avengers. That's cool. I Yeah, the, the Hickman run on Avengers was... Um, Definitely my kind of swung song with the team. Um, but uh, there were things I liked, but there were things I didn't. But I did kind of enjoy like the weird and wild cast of characters because it was a massive mm. team. Yeah, it was like it was huge. Four, 14 or so members. Kind of kind of comparable with the, um, the Morrison JLA lineup, to be honest. Yeah. Oh, that's a nice segue you just did. Oh, look at me. <laughs> <laughs> it's like we've been doing this 42, uh, 42 issues, PJ. What? Um, um, but PJ, um, where on earth are we? We're, we're, we're slap bang somewhere in 1 million, I believe. We are. We're still, we're, we're continuing with our look at, at, uh, a crossover. I was going to say the greatest crossover of all time, but let's face it, it's not. Um, yeah, DC's big, big well, no, winter event, I guess, autumn event. It was November that year, wasn't it? Yes. Um, yeah. Yeah. So DC's big autumn event for that year, DC 1 million where Justice Legion A come back to the past, send the Justice League of America to the future to celebrate the return of the original Superman to come out of his retirement in the sun in the 853rd century. And it's all gone tits up, to be honest, because of Vandal Savage and Solaris, the tyrant's son. You mentioned this being coming out in November. And it's weird because, uh, listeners, for, for your benefit and ours, we have, a, we have a spreadsheet which we use to kind of keep track of uh, all the stuff we're, we're, we're working through. And I had, uh, for the longest time, a, a single row in the spreadsheet just called DC 1 million. <laughs> and that, that has now extended to being nine rows. Um, and I've got them all down as being November 98, which is kind of mostly true. That's certainly when the first part came out. But how quickly, PJ, do you reckon they released the event issues, by which I mean... 1 million part 1 2 3 and 4 because the preceding issue of JLA came out in October 98 yeah November 98 is basically DC 1 million and then in December 98 Morrison's back on JLA yeah so like did they squeeze the whole event into a month or I guess they that that's what they were probably aiming to do have an issue of DC 1 million every week in the month of November so that all the other books would have their one million issues that month and that was fine and then you just have one extra book a week for dc one million wouldn't surprise me if issue four had been delayed by a couple of weeks and came out halfway through december or something instead though mm. it is funny isn't it and i know we've talked a few times i'm just i'm, I'm reminiscing now about the the, the one million experience but um <laughs> it's so funny like that nowadays if you google dc one million you'll probably get the cover art for the the big omnibus edition they've yeah. done now 
so what we're reading is quite outdated by its very its very nature. I, I just wonder if um, you know they can't conceivably can't have put every single tie-in issue in it'd be it'd be bigger than final crisis surely uh no they they didn't they left out young heroes in love one million because of rights issues but everything else yes it's seriously in that book yeah really oh wow god it must be thicker than i kind of imagined but yeah it's it's i i bet it's one of those books that's just too you can't read it it's too big to actually read you just have it on your shelf and go yes i have all of dc one million no i'm not letting you pick it up I, I've been looking into the logistics of printing uh, hardback uh, graphic novels, and um, I'm looking at trying to get printed. Oh, I think something like a 376-page book, hmm. and that's you know a real beast. You know, you're getting into big, big sizes. And I, I remember asking around and saying, like, um, you know, how big can you physically go with a with a hardback? And I think somebody somebody said a friend on Twitter said that they own the DC Final Crisis like Ultra Edition hardback, mm-hmm. and that's about a they said something daft like a thousand a thousand page um, hardback or something like that. That's like ridiculous. I might be exaggerating, but I mean, geez, Louise, like it'd be it'd be, it'd be as wide as it is tall, surely. <laughs> you would imagine. I've I've seen a couple of the really big omnibuses that both DC and Marvel have put out collecting events and things. The one I remember seeing in my local Forbidden Planet a few years ago was the Acts of Vengeance omnibus where Marvel put every Acts of Vengeance issue in in one book and that was huge. Oh, it made no me sense to me. It was ridiculous. You're testing me now, PJ. Acts of Vengeance. I know it, the name. What it happened was in the that one? late 80s crossover where basically all the Marvel heroes swapped villains. Um, okay. So the X-Men fought the Mandarin for three issues. He recruited Psylocke to be Lady Mandarin with the hand. Um, Captain America had a fight with Magneto, which is the same issue where Magneto tries to kill the Red Skull because Magneto's Jewish, the Red Skull's a Nazi, so you would. Um, I believe Daredevil fought Ultron. <laughs> wow. Things like that, you know? So that was entirely it, but basically just all the villains swapped. For there a... was a through line in some of the issues uh, where the villains sort of got together and they orchestrated this. I think Loki was the one behind it in the end. So um, I think that was in the Avengers issues. But yeah, it was it was basically just an excuse for creative teams to have the main character of their books fight a villain that maybe they hadn't fought before. Wasn't... Yeah, it's funny, like you mentioned weirdly now you've said it out loud, I realise I'm not familiar with that one. I've never I've heard of the title, I just didn't I had no idea that was the plot. It made me think of didn't Marvel have a thing running in the background of some of their books in the eighties, maybe into the nineties, where a mysterious figure called Scourge Yes w- was Scourge going around the underworld. Yeah, was killing like minor villains, basically. Yeah, and it would happen like one or two pages of of every books for like six months or so, I think it was happening, building up to... I want to say that that built, built up to the original, and, and I might well be wrong on this, and if I am, I do apologise, someone please let me know, but I feel like that built up to the original version of Secret Empire. Right. Okay. Weird. <laughs> anyway, PJ, apologies, I'm getting I'm getting off topic again. Uh, but I, I think we are, as of the end of this episode, we will be two thirds of the way through our DC One Million recap. 
Yeah, including this episode, we only have four chapters of DC One Million left to go. So that's exciting. And two of them are going to be, well, I was going to say crossovers, but I guess tie-in is probably, tie-in is probably the best, yeah. best way of describing it. Um, so, yeah, I think there's going to be some more ups and downs before we get to the end of this. But um, from what I remember, one of them is my favourite of the tie-in issues reprinted, which is bizarre given the character it's devoted to, because I hadn't heard of him before this book. <laughs> um, and then the other one, yeah, I, in my memory, it's better than Starman and detective comics have been but you know we'll see we shall see i although i i must say i have some high hopes for this episode um i think uh, there's a few things to look forward to mm. in uh dc one million part three which of course is not part three of our recap but is part three of the actual core event book which is called dc one million yes if that makes sense right okay so i guess uh the most immediate recap is that uh the JLA and Justice Legion A, such as they are, with their members completed, have uh, worked out their differences and are now having to build the supercomputer Solaris in the present day because it is the only computer in existence sophisticated enough to deal with the Hourman virus. And thus save the present day, but by doing so, they're dooming the future with the creation of Solaris. PJ, is that in any way correct? I think so. It feels like there's some stuff that's just dropped in this issue. Having read this last night coming up, where they say, oh, and this is why we're doing this. And I'm like, I should have known that earlier, I think, but we'll get to that. <laughs> oh, and also, um, Starman has a big mystery rock. It's kryptonite. Uh, well, PJ has a theory. It, it really could be anything, um, but he's got a big... <laughs> green rock called the night fragment and um literally like jumping right on from the end of the previous issue so much so that we weren't entirely sure where the break fell um batman one million so batman of the future but not that batman of the future has accused scarman of being a traitor batman of the far far future yes batman of the so far he's almost come round again into the past future that's a long name i'm not calling him that every time um, but PJ, um, uh, jumping, I mean, leaving Batman's nomenclature aside, um, what on earth is happening? Well, we're on the third day, so everything we've read so far has happened over three days, which is crazy when you think about it. Uh, and we're in, uh, Oracle's Watchtower and there's all sorts of broadcasts coming in from people who are rioting or going a little bit crazy. Um, while someone talks to her saying, you know, keep describing what you're feeling. Supergirl's on the screen saying that they've saved Metropolis. Wonder Woman saved Supergirl and the Justice Legion aren't the enemy. Vandal Savage appears on another screen saying, you know, you've infected me with a mind-destroying virus. I'm going to kill everybody. And yeah, Gotham's on fire. Bearing in mind, we are post-Quake as well in Gotham. Um. And PJ, I, I think you, you that was a really good roundup, um, but I think you glossed over something in the first panel. Oh, yeah. Uh, Oracle smashed her glasses. No, no, no. There's more. <laughs> in, the th- in, in the third bubble, PJ. My name is Pat Trace, and I'm sitting here holding a gun to my head, and I don't know why I shouldn't just. So, PJ, who is Pat Trace? I'm not sure. 
Well, um, it struck me when I was reading this that Morrison saw fit to embolden their name in the bubble. And that just made me think, that's a really odd detail. Why, mm-hmm. why, why go to the effort of saying who that random person was? And if you go on the DC database online, ahem, Pat Trace is uh, Vigilante. The oh! Third. In uh, in comics, I uh, did not know that. There we go. Yeah, it was such a weird reference. I've absolutely no idea why that was put in, but I believe this is not the original vigilante. Uh, I suspect maybe she may be the third vigilante, but she was a former member of the Gotham City Police Department, and uh, and then met Deathstroke, the Terminator, and kind of. I don't know, decided to become vigilante. And so there we go, basically. Well, there we go. John's done his detective work this week, everybody. Well, thank you. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I, I still haven't actually read Kronos 1 million, so I have to kind of, you know, make up for my failure somehow. John's done the wrong detective work? Uh, I am truly a Batman 1 million for for the age. <laughs> Um, but no, but as you say, PJ, um, this is like our kind of quick roundup, showing you everything that's happening. Um, I guess kind of also showing what happened to Supergirl, and yeah. um, also an image we will see again uh, in the pages of JLA. But like uh, Gotham burning with the uh, the clock tower, uh, where where Oracle's base kind of like uh, in the background. Let's be honest, Gotham was already a mess. They did not need people to be sent crazy with the Owlman virus at this point in time. Yeah, I'm glad you reminded me that, of course, Gotham had been struck by an earthquake recently because, um, I mean, otherwise, um, you would think that, yeah, things went really bad in Gotham really quickly. <laughs> like, it broke bad. Yeah. It's, um, a small detail. I do like how um, Vandal Savage, uh, being paranoid and infected by the Owlman virus just automatically assumes that the world targeted him with the Hourman virus, that it's like a, it's all about him, basically. It's, so it's just that, the- that level of arrogance that some of the best supervillains have. <laughs> where it's like the same with Lex Luthor. Everything Superman does is all about Lex. And in, in, in Vandal's case, it's everything anyone does in the world is, is about me, okay? <laughs> yeah, and it, it's so weird in a way, because like young Vandal Savage is almost like completely unconnected to the plot here in a yeah. way like he's just being a, a crazy neanderthal which is what he does all the time but yeah it's just like just completely no idea what's going on bless him he's just being a, <laughs> a grand scanding villain and it's wonderful yeah so things are a mess is basically where we are at the moment so then we get our title page the title of the story is solaris rising with Grant Morrison, writer, Val Semix, penciler, Prentice Rollins, inker, Ken Lopez, letterer, Pat Garrahi, colorist, Heroic Age, separator, Tony Bedard, associate editor, and Dan Raspler, editor. Indeed. And um, we get a great big uh, splash page, uh, kind of similar to the one we had at the end of the previous issue, of the JLA and the Justice Legion um, assembling Solaris, who is starting to take uh, kind of more shape now. Yeah, Zauriel's doing some welding, Steel's hitting it with his hammer, Wonder Woman's attaching a spike. Uh, I'm a bit sad that Plastic Man isn't the scaffold tower anymore, but what are you going to do? 
No, he's kind of become a kind of like a segmented platform sort of thing. And his nose is kind of like a screwdriver, I would say. Yeah. Yeah. While Huntress stands on the platform and is tinkering with something. And Aquaman is holding a bit of metal. I do. Purpose unknown. I do wonder about these sorts of scenes because this this is actually a surprisingly common trope where it's like a team or two teams building a thing. Yeah. Uh, my mind goes to JLA Avengers. Exactly the example that came to my mind as well. And I do wonder about that because, like, you've got um, you've got like a, a couple of super geniuses on the team, you know, be it Tony Stark or be it Steel, you know, and they're directing the construction of this thing. And then I don't know, you've got like Aquaman, who's kind of strong, but like the whole team has to chip in. So yeah, <laughs> yeah it's just like. All these amazing powers, and it's like, uh, I guess I'll carry a wrench, I suppose. I feel like this is this is the superhero equivalent of a team building exercise. Yeah, I'm just I'm just saying, PJ, that, that if I was on this team, and even if I had like the awesome ability to like shoot lasers out of my eyes or something, I'd be like, we have welding torches. I would only make an, a hash of it if I tried to use my eyes. I'm going to sit this one out. It's like, guys, I'm not being lazy. I just feel I would genuinely bring nothing to the table. Well, I feel like that's Superman's role in this bit because he's just sort of looking at some computers going, oh, we're running out of time. And well, I'll lend a hand then. But also, PJ, I mean, according to the factoid at the, at the beginning of the previous issue, uh, Superman is, I'm bringing it up now, a genius to the power of 10 Einstein units. So that's a guy I want on the computers, basically. <laughs> when do we work out that was the equivalent to? Like a litre of water? I can't remember. Uh, but... Yeah, it was like a, a, a gram of smarts, basically. <laughs> but he, he says, you know, if Solaris isn't completed within the hour, humanity's going to have destroyed itself by dawn. And basically says to, shouts down to our man, you know, get up to the watchtower. Yeah, and um, our man uh, is kind of, I think he's in a teleport pod, I think. He is. Yeah, and he looks drunk, for lack of a better word. Yeah, he looks really drunk, and uh, he's just kind of like chilling. Um, But yeah, he's basically feeling uh, really, really bad, really guilty because he carried the Hourman virus into the present day. I mean, it's literally called the Hourman virus. Like, uh, that would kind of suck if this this terrible infection is named after you. Well, if there's one thing I've learned from Star Trek The Next Generation, it's that diseases are often named after the first person who get them uh yeah that's gonna suck though (laughs) it's like i'm already having a bad day uh and uh superman one million uh kind of snaps and just goes well hang um, on john you've you've skipped over a key piece of information here that our man gives us that he says the virus is searching for solaris destroying everything in its path it's his mind waiting for his body to be built apparently the our man virus was solaris all along uh yep yep that's that's cool and uh, um and superman uh kind of glosses over that as well and basically says you know i'm sick of your self-important adolescent whining we have work to do and then he um and then he kind of pauses and goes uh actually no forgive me that that was really rude i don't know why i said that i guess the virus is making us irrational and uh yeah you could tell that the team are starting to lose it because uh john fox the flash of the future uh keep i don't know he's like got terrible deja vu basically 
Yeah, he keeps thinking he's put the same panel on the Solaris shell over and over again. He's thinking out of order. He's even not sure if he's already said things. And Superman reassures him, no, you've been doing different panels each time. You're doing okay. Just keep at it. Mm. Uh, yeah, and I guess it's nice to see that, I don't know, by, by I don't know, what I'm trying to say, these future people are generally, generally meant to be like, more evolved than us you know they're meant to be more intelligent more more patient uh i think J- uh, jong said in an earlier an earlier issue that they don't have telepathic shields because they have nothing to hide in the future yeah um and yeah aquaman was still a bit of a petty a petty um asshole for lack of a better <laughs> word <laughs> <laughs> yeah he was and but it does you know the viruses hit them quite hard at this point they're all it, it, you know so aquaman who was already not great is is just the worst now i think is how that works and i guess also you know because we see the justice league you know the 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 best justice league lineup ever um and um they, they're doing a lot better i guess because they've been on the moon for a while and haven't been like as exposed yeah. to the virus basically yeah, well, that's what you know. Plastic Man says. Put he grows his hand really big and puts it between himself and the Justice Legion, so they can't hear him, which is great. Also, flashes up the words, "We're not talking about you" on it, and I just love that moment. Plastic Man never change, but but also like <laughs> I mean, like Superman one million can hear like atoms kind yeah. of splitting. So um, I don't know. It's it's a, it's a small gesture from, from yeah. Plastic Man, but Plastic Man says, "Look, they're getting those serial killer eyes again. Can we plan an ambush?" Until it dawns on them that they could, you know, he actually says how a la mode they'd look wearing our intestines as earrings. <laughs> and Steel points out, you know, because they've come up here, we're now infected with the virus too. So thanks for that, Justice Legion. <laughs> yeah, cheers. So it's actually um, in our best interest to just carry on and help with this. Uh, yeah, it's really, this is a do or die situation now. And um, but you can see that's um, Superman 1 million, like, his pa- of course, he's got the additional problem of his powers are fading in the present day because he his he only has his powers under the super sun of the future, mm-hmm. um, and he's basically trying to do like the the final calculations while you know flagging seriously, and uh, he asks where Batman is, and Aquaman says he's interrogating Starman, <laughs> and Superman's eyes kind of go wide as he says, "What? He'll kill him." And I quite like that Batman never change either. <laughs> uh, yeah, because, um, yeah, uh, PJ, I don't know if this is uh, cathartic for you in any way, but as we turn the page, we see Batman 1 million uh, punching Starman right in the face, basically. It is a glorious half-page panel. It looks fantastic, to be fair. Val Semix does a brilliant job with the pencils here. The movement of Batman as he punches Starman in the face and Starman falls to the floor as blood flying out of his mouth and his helmet flying off is it's just fantastic i love it i've got to say like um you know we 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 sing uh howard porter's praises quite a bit um but val cmex doing a really good job i've enjoyed his work a lot actually yeah me too i think it's it's really really great he, i think i feel like semix and, and porter have a similar style and they sort of convey action in similar ways and and it so it really works with Morrison's script, and and yeah, Semix does a brilliant, brilliant job, and and I yeah, this whole page actually between Batman and Starman is superb. 
And also, like, a, a very small thing, and I'll try not to go on too much of a, a, a tangent here, but um, just a little shout-out to Pat Garahay on the, on the colouring front, mm. because the colouring is, is often, you know, kind of like an unsung unsung hero of, of the comic page. And I feel like you mentioned recolouring earlier, and, and I reckon, like, if, if, if this were re-released today, I think there might be a strong temptation to recolour it, to bring it up to kind of modern scandags for lack of a better word yeah but, but i really like the coloring and i know it's probably of the time and we probably do a lot more of it now but i think it looks it looks very vibrant you know it, it it's it works on the page there and is, i get i get a powerful burst of nostalgia basically from how these pages look there is no reason to recolor old comics no reason at all i think because I know Marvel have released some recolored versions of like the classic Jack Kirby and Steve Ditko comics, and they look awful because those lines, those pencil lines and inks, aren't designed to go with modern colors. You need an art team working together to make something special. And yeah, I agree. There probably would be a temptation to recolor this stuff as well. But you know, this is Semix and Garrahy working together, and. It's brilliant. It looks fantastic. It doesn't need to change. And just because you go, oh, with modern colouring, though, we can do this, doesn't mean you should. You know, an old drawing from the 60s wasn't designed to be coloured using modern computer techniques, and it looks stupid, and people need to stop doing it. <laughs> um, and Starman hears what you're saying and says, you're going mad. That's directed right at you, PJ. I think he's talking to Batman. Oh, it could be, it could be. Um, I do like also that, like, um, Starman, by his own admission, and through one of the pop-up boxes, wields, like, is it something like the Quarvat is, like, the fifth most powerful weapon in the universe or something? Yeah, yeah. And um, and despite that, uh, it turns out that punching someone in the face before they can use it is a very effective strategy. Yeah, it's fallen out of Starman's hand, and without the Quarvat, he's just shrinking back. He can't. He knows that without his weapon, Batman is far superior. And he he says, "You're going to kill me. The virus is eating your brain." And Batman says, "Yeah, I'm going mad. The virus is causing me to experience extreme paranoid reactions. What's your excuse?" Uh, it's a fair point, and I can't. I got to say, like, there's many. As many flaws as there are in the execution of the Scarman storyline, um, I very much like the look of Scarman, one million. I yes. very much love the weirdness of the Corvat. I, I, I would have liked to have seen it explored a little more. Yeah, likewise. I, I actually, this whole page I, I love, and I think this is also the page where Batman one million really started to gel with me. Because, see, in the first issue of DC one million, he kidnaps regular batman and sends him to the future against his will not down with that and then he doesn't get a whole lot to do until detective comics which was bad that was just mm. a bad comic and then jla he's in a little bit but this is the first time we see him properly in action and basically properly being batman and it's great he's really really cool yeah and he does feel like a different character yeah you, compared to regular Batman, is what I'm saying. Like, I think it would have been very easy to just, you know, he's he's in he's in the suit. He's got like a full a full face mask. You can't see any kind of humanity to him. 
you could just write him as Batman. But yeah, he, yeah you're right. Like here, his you start to get an idea of his character, basically. And yeah, and he's 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 a fun character. Yeah, definitely. But we cut away from Batman, and we're back with Oracle, who still has the atom inside her. Yes, we all forgot about that, that, didn't we? Yeah, yeah. Uh, there's a tiny man in her blood. Yes, yeah. So the atom is is in her bloodstream, uh, basically trying to fight the virus, and even she seems to have forgotten that. And basically, he's uh, he's found the cure. He's figured out how to deal with it. And Oracle instantly starts to feel better. But uh, yeah, he's he's managed to make it so that her white blood cells can finally attack the Hourman virus, take it apart, and he starts broadcasting from inside Oracle's lymphatic system to tell Cadmus that the virus has now been cracked. And um, this is um, the Axum at adult age again. Yes. Right. Yes. Okay. So he is he is he is again flirting flirting with Oracle, who's a little bit younger. You know, he's he's just being a little he's just being a little little flirty from the yeah. old blood scream there. Yeah. Yeah. Well he he points out <laughs> that even though the virus is from the future, it's actually fairly simple. It's a program looking for a system to download itself into, and it can be weakened by just erasing parts of it at a cellular level. So basically the atom needs to go inside everybody's bloodstream in the world and do that. Yeah, and he's basically done enough for Oracle where her, he's triggered her immune response, basically, and her antibodies are breaking breaking down the Owlman virus. Yeah. Um, of course, we'll I will come back to this in a you know presently, but um, so the 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 flip the the outcome of this is that the atom has apparently worked out a cure or a treatment for the Owlman virus. But I I think that kind of becomes irrelevant pretty soon. Yes, it does. Yes, okay. Uh, okay, so uh, you know, Oracle starts spreading the good word that they have a uh, they have a, a cure, shall we call it, for the Owlman virus, uh, and she chats with Nightwing, who's you know off doing his thing, and uh, who rightly points out that it will take time to manufacture and distribute an antidote, which um, you know, saying it out loud, you suddenly realise how close to home this hits. Uh, yes, yes, it does. Um, <laughs> that is a whole process, as we all know now. Yeah, now how many people in Gotham are going to say, no, I don't believe in the Arrowman virus and you've put this cure together too quickly with a little man in your blood? This is a this is a this is a Kryptonian this escape from a Kryptonian lab. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but PJ, guess who's back on the TV screen? Oh look, it's Arsenal. He's alive. I mean he caused so many problems, but yes. he's alive. Yeah, he he just contacts Oracle and she says, "Where are you? Do you need help?" So she sends help in the form of Jean. And wow, it's a it's a big Jean Jean moments coming up, shall we? Say. Yeah, yeah, it's it's angry Jean, and we all know how we much how much we love angry Jean around here. I I get the same energy off this as I get from Jean being just royally pissed off when. Uh, the uh, Asmodel's angels turn yep. up, and yep. it's just Same. like I am. Just it's like how many times do we have to deal with people like you? And just oh yeah, John, John has a lot of anger, and he's just letting it out. I love it. So he's uh he's flying down. Basically says to Oracle, Arsenal's fine. Uh, I'm on the JLA telepathic link, and I guess bringing other people into it too. And 
you know, here's Vandal Savage's Blitz engines, which are basically massive, massive tanks. Like, take a tank, put uh, another couple of tanks on top of it. <laughs> add, add, a, add a conservatory, yeah. you know, like a nice little mezzanine area. And and <laughs> there you go. That's a Blitz engine. And Jean is flying right towards them. And Vandal Savage is actually inside one of them. Yeah, I do also like the idea that Vandal Savage, like a, like a drunk with a handgun, is just like in the middle of the desert, just kind of shooting stuff randomly. Yeah, he has gone a bit doolally, hasn't he? He basically said, Hitler himself said the machines would never work against the supermen. Like all the rest of them down the centuries, his mortality, his fear was his downfall. He trembled before those monsters of evolution. I destroy them with a wave of my hand. Look, Hitler, look! Which, look, Hitler, look, might be one of the weirdest things I've ever read out loud, but... Bless... Oh, bless him. Morrison writing a megalomaniacal villain just brings me a deep joy. Yeah. I can't... Like, they do it so well. That's just pure kind of, like, pop art nonsense. Like, look, Hitler, look! Yeah. Um, (laughs) And then he fires a rocket at John. Yes, yeah, and... um, (laughs) <laughs> Jean just takes it, like Jean just takes it in the chest, and uh, the the backlash is enough to blow out Vandal Savage's eye, basically. Yeah, the 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 half page shot of Jean taking this rocket to the chest, and the explosion of Kirby crackle around him as he just grits his teeth with his massive arms and legs. <laughs> it's it's a glorious panel, it really is, and. Jean's not done, you know, that, that was just a, a mild graze, basically. And um, he, he goes down to the base of the Blitz engine and goes, enough, this madness will no longer be tolerated. The age of empires and conquerors is over. You and your kind belong to the dust of history. And just picks up the tank and basically tears one of its tregs off. It's a brilliant, brilliant sequence that really shows just how you don't often see Jean unleashing his full power and what he can do, and he's just tearing this machine to shreds now. I, I, I've got to say, like, it, it's it's a scene like this that just makes me realise, like, one, how iconic Jean looks. Like, it's a hell of a striking look. And, and, and it amazes me that DC are forever trying to redesign Jean Mm. As it, as if he's not working, like I can never get behind the idea of Jean wearing trousers, like that just no. looks really weird to me. And also Jean, but he's got like a weird, he hasn't got the red X on his chest. He's got like a, oh I don't know, there's versions where he's wearing like a vest or where, where he's got like a kind of moon symbol or a Mars symbol in the middle yeah. of his chest. It's so weird to me. Yeah, give me a classic just. Pants and a harness and a cape and his pirate boots. That's my Jean. He's got, you've got this amazing, amazing designed, simplistic, iconic character, and yet he's so re- he's always left out of adaptations, and he's often redesigned as if there's something wrong with him. I I don't get it. <laughs> DC, if you need anyone to do a proper Martian Manhunter book, we're your guys. <laughs> oh yeah. And uh, and we haven't really talked about it, but I think P- PJ and I could really pioneer like a, I'll write one bubble, he'll write the next, <laughs> you know, like uh, we'll we'll do it like a kind of um, uh, thing you did as a kid where everyone says like one line of the story. I feel we could do that very organically. 
Yeah, that would make for amazing reading. It would be the best comic DC ever published. I, I'm, I'm not going to comment on that. We'll move on. Um, <laughs> but PJ, uh, we're back on the Watchtower. Yeah, we're back with Batman and Starman. And, you know, Starman starts trying to defend himself. He's like, oh, you can't judge me. You were driven to do what you were, what you do. I was told I had to be Starman. I didn't want to be Starman. And Batman says, basically says, don't care. You know, you're not getting anything from me. Simple choice here. You can either be responsible for the deaths of billions or not. The night fragment. And then Starman says, it's kryptonite. Aha! Wow. Wow. That's, um, that's, that's kind of taken me by surprise, PJ, actually. I, I don't know. It's a bit left field. I knew all along. Uh, yeah, and and Starman is like, I was. It was my job to make sure that this big lump of kryptonite ended up under the sands of Mars. It's a kryptonite bullet. Solaris is going to use it to assassinate Superman Prime when he emerges from the sun in the year eighty-five two seven one. Yeah, at which point Batman picks up the Quavat and throws it back to Starman and says maybe Solaris controlled your mind who knows, don't let me down and Starman is rightfully confused saying well why are you giving me this What do you know what I could do with it and Batman just says generate 15 million Kelvin units because that's what they need to get the Solaris computer active yeah um, so there we go, I mean like a, a fun scene in itself um I, I like the inversion. It's a bit like uh, Steel deciding not to attack the Justice Legion because mm. he believed in the inherent goodness of someone. It's nice to see Batman doing the same for Scarman. Um, at the same time, and you know, we've talked about this many a time, it's a very weird resolution to the Scarman arc, such as it is. It, like, it, um, it feels unearned to me. It's... I don't know. We never knew Starman well enough for him to be a traitor to really resonate with us and then for Batman to turn him back because none of it I didn't really care about it with him with the character. It's still just like, uh, it just doesn't feel like we've earned this with Starman. And I get that it's servicing the story but we either spent too much time with it or not enough time with Starman for it to matter. Well, we're going to get a little more on yeah. Starman in a few pages, and I definitely, you know, definitely will have some stuff to say about that. But, but yes, I, I, I very much agree with you, PJ. And I think, uh, you know, at the end of this issue, we can maybe um, sum up the Starman storyline mm -hmm. in its entirety. Um, but Jean, Jean isn't done. Uh, he, <laughs> he, uh, he throws, um, he throws one Blitz engine onto the other. I mean, like he's he's barely breaking a sweat. It's it's another fantastic panel. Jean's quite small, and we're behind him in this one. But just seeing the devastation he's wreaking on these two massive death machines is fantastic. Uh, yeah, and um, uh, Vandal Savage, uh, sadly, like a bad penny, is still not dead. Uh, but he's kind of trapped in the wreckage. Uh, there looks like this petrol kind of uh, some kind of fuel pouring all over him. One of his eyes is bloodied, and uh, a red arrow goes comes flying and uh, pins his sleeve to to the wall. And then we get the Titans, such as they are, so Tempest, Arsenal, Supergirl, and Jesse Quick running towards us with a lot of exposition coming out of Tempest's mouth. I got out of the suit by using the ice on the casing at high altitude. Everyone in Montevideo died because I blacked out and fell into the South Atlantic. Cool, whatever. 
Yeah. Um, yeah, and basically, you know, Arsenal's hungry for revenge and, you know, he's basically saying, like, you know, I'm aiming at your good eye, you know, if the arrow slips, I'm blaming the virus, and but you're under arrest, Dr. Savage, basically. Is he a doctor? Did Vandal Savage get doctorates? He probably had the time, didn't he? He probably is. Yeah, he's probably like a uh, he's probably like a super doctor. You know, like he's done it like <laughs> twice over, at least twice over. <laughs> yeah, but Arsenal's basically going, "Where's a uh, where's your speech for this? Come on, something from the Art of War." And John shouts, "Look out!" As Savage pulls out an incendiary arrow that he must have nicked off Arsenal earlier on and just kept in his coat, and he says the Martian's vulnerable to naked flame and just sets it on fire. I don't want to be rude, but like, Jesse Quick, Jean, Supergirl. It's a shame we didn't have anyone around with super speed, but, you know, <laughs> there we go. <laughs> we can, we can, you know, blame the Hour Man virus. They all forgot well, for a let's moment. Blame, <laughs> let's blame... I guess it was the will of the force. Um, <laughs> but yeah, Great Big Inferno... Uh, you know, he somehow slips away in in the chaos, which, of course, he does. He always gets away. And uh, even to a point where Tempest can't even detect the water in his blood. But, um, yeah, he Vandal Savage slips off into the night. And Tempest says, we can't let him get away. And John says, he'll be back. He always comes back. And, yeah, Vandal walks towards the Sphinx with a bandage around his head to cover his bloody eye. And he says... Oh, even if it takes a 10,000 years, I can wait. Given, like, the amount of times that Vandal Savage has just failed miserably, you've got to have an astounding level of self-belief to get back up again. And <laughs> I mean, like, I'm not, I'm not saying, you know, I'm not saying he's a role model. I'm just saying, in terms of, like, self-actualization, like, there's a level of motivation here, which, you know, we could all, we could all learn from. Yeah. Definitely. I mean, he has had successes as well in the past. We just don't see those in the comics because the comic's not about him. So, uh, Could I also take a moment to say that uh, Zhang's uh, pirate boots have never looked better yep. than on this page? I mean, like, we're talking a massive cuff here. I'm a, I'm a big fan. Yeah, they're, they're, they're just below his knees. They've, that's how high they come up and, and they're, they're thick and beefy. Great boot work. I feel like for a while, didn't Hawkeye have like massive, yes. massive cuffs? Yeah, a big. Yeah, Captain America as well. Oh. If if the fact is like if he actually rolled them all the way up, they'd basically be trousers. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, they're, they're his missing trousers, is what I'm saying. <laughs> I also just want to point out that the final panel on this page of of Savage limping towards the Sphinx in the dust of the desert, saying "I have forever." That feels like a, it's it's a beautifully drawn panel, and it feels like a wonderful ending to a story. Like if if this was on TV or something, that would be him going, "I can wait, mm. I have forever," and then the credits roll. You just get this little musical sting credits roll, and it's beautiful. Obviously, we've got a lot more comic to go, but yeah, that is a great ending to a story. That is, I've got to say, PJ, that's actually like that's a very good point because if you took all the scenes that were in this story and you decided to like, well, let's leave that out. That bit's not important. That bit's not important. If you just readjusted the focus on elements of this story, this would be a wonderful ending. Like, if that had been how an event book had ended, like maybe if that final panel was like a splash page, mm -hmm. 
it'd be pretty evocative. Yeah. But because it's just a small moment in this massive story, it's it it seems to be forgotten a lot. But yeah, I think it's it's a beautiful moment. Uh but yeah, so um from the end of one uh kind of subplot to the continuation of another, um yeah, in kind of orbit around the moon, uh we get some techno babble and then Fiat Lux, let there be light. And Solaris is complete. It it kind of ex- it explodes into being, basically. And yeah, and Wonder Woman instantly goes, what have we done? And Superman says, pray we've saved the 20th century. And we get a line here, which again is proving that out of the entire DC multiverse, the universe we should be most aware of is the one inside Morrison's head. <laughs> because um, Batman 1 million says, Two-Face 2 was finally cured when the second Batman proved to him that, coin toss by coin toss, he'd made more good choices than evil ones. Statistics. Long story. Short answer. Expect the good to win out. And if you've read Morrison's run on Batman and the uh, Time and the Batman storyline, you meet Two-Face 2 in a future storyline, basically. I haven't read that one. Yeah, it's a, it's a weird little story. It takes place across three time periods with three different Batmen. You've got Batman, Batman, i.e. Bruce. You've got uh, uh, Dick Grayson as Batman. And you've got uh, potential future Batman of Damian Wayne. And they're all trying to solve the same murder in a way. But oh, in different okay. time periods. Uh, it's, it's, it's again, it's, it maybe sounds better on paper than it is in execution, but there's some fun moments in there. Mm. And you do get to see Two-Face 2. Cool. I, I'll have to check that out just for that. Because, yeah, I love that little throwaway moment as well with how do we know Solaris isn't going to just... or Sorry, how do we know Starman isn't going to just kill us with his star rod thing? And it's like, well, Two-Face 2, here's a little story. And it's weird, actually, because... we. As you say, like we're getting more of Batman One Million's personality in this issue than we've had in the preceding parts, mm. and I don't know. I don't know if this is just what like future intelligence looks like, but it it feels a lot more like kind of I don't know. Like what would you call it? Like this is a Batman who is more trusting in certain things in a way. Yeah, I th- I, I mean, he's got a lot more sort of history of superhumans and things to look back on and examples to pull from than, than Bruce Wayne does, perhaps. So maybe he, he can afford to be slightly more trusting. Mm. As he says here, statistics. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I wish we'd kind of spent a little more time with, you know, the Justice Legion and got to got to know them a bit better. Um, but yeah, so um, the population of the world reacts in panic as they see a, a second... A second sun light up the sky. I love the guy who goes, run! I'm like, well, where are you going to run from a sun? What do you think is... <laughs> run? Well, run in, you know, you know, PJ, run run to Australia. <laughs> it's nighttime there, apparently. Or run run to one of those Alaskan towns where it's always night for Ooh, like, a yeah. month. <laughs> where the vampires Sun can't live. get you there. No, no, it's true, it's true. Um, and uh, everybody on the planet experiences a, a mass cleansing as um, 
the the virus, the Hourman virus explodes out of their bodies as like jets of kind of green smoke, for lack of a better word. Yeah, and I love that we do get a little moment with uh, uh, Lex Luthor's tower and someone saying, the Hourman virus which threatened the planet is now leaving the planet, Mr. Luthor. It's leaving our bodies and our machines in the form of a cloud of viral dust. We think that the micronova event we just witnessed in space is somehow connected to... And then Luthor says, no, that was my first opinion, which you simply repeat parrot fashion. It wasn't a virus, it was a program disguised as a virus. And what it's doing now is downloading itself into that thing up there. Two things... One, that is a, a, a genius way of having both a cameo and delivering exposition. Yep. You know, I, I, I love how Luther doesn't even appear in, the, in this story, and yet he's just such a wonderful dick. It's astounding. <laughs> uh, and also, the Lex Luthor Tower is a design classic. And oh, yeah. I, I love it every time I see it. <laughs> More towers should be L-shaped. I mean, like... The execution, again, a little rocky, but, you know, the idea of an AI downloading itself into a time traveller so that it could re-upload itself into its younger body in the past is a, is a you know, throwaway, high-concept sci-fi thing that I don't 100% hate. No, I, I like it. I just feel like it gets dumped on us very quickly here mm. and... Yeah, I, th- I feel like more could have been done with that. Yeah, agreed. It, it's maybe, yeah, again, it's all about the execution, really. And uh, But our, our man's back up and running, and he's feeling a hell of a lot better now the virus is out of him. And uh, he, 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 he's, in, he's in the teleport pod, and he points out that uh, within minutes, uh, Solaris will flush his plasma generators, which I have to imagine is, feels very satisfying. And... Um, <laughs> He's going to produce a red giant type solar photosphere to a diameter of nine million miles. Oceans will boil. Instant cremation on all of all life on Earth will occur. Someone has to stop him. And then we see Solaris declaring that he is Solaris, that he is self-aware, and that the plasma vent is imminent as energy starts to crackle around him. And then Starman flies towards him and basically says oh i was bad and now i think i'll be good and you know i met the original Starman. he was nice that's about it really yeah um it's it's in itself it is quite a a nice scene where yeah on the one hand Starman finally gets to do something um it does again it almost feels like it belongs in a different book because we haven't spent a lot of time with his character to really feel the weight of his redemption in yeah. a way. But it's it's a fun it's fun in some ways because we get like a uh, you know we get a, the inside of Starman's head for the first time, and we we as he flies towards Solaris and is kind of fighting his way through the. No, we'd even call it. I'm 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 not a, a sun scientist, but like the uh the, the radiation outer outer sphere of Scarman. It's it's some really wild visuals and, mm. and I like the idea that you get his 
his thought process while he's like he's kind of describing what he's doing to fight his way in, which I quite like. Yeah, he he uses the gravity rod to curve space-time just enough to send the radiation back to Solaris. And he points out at the moment Solaris is an infant, but his intelligence is doubling every second. Yeah, and he's he's basically using the Quarvat, uh, which is kind of like um, an evolution of Skarmang's gravity rod. And its powers aren't massively explained. I kind of like the weirdness of it. But he's basically altering physics-y stuff to kind of turn Solaris into a black hole, basically, which would kind of collapse him down into, into a harmless state. I, I think that's what he's trying to do. Yeah. He says um, this is something that uh, this move, the attack, is what killed Star Woman in the 801st century as well. He's basically trying to fire Solaris to the edge of the edge of space through a black hole yeah and mm. he winks across the universe and he does say then and as he went he turned his eye to look at me just once his servant his destroyer his betrayer just once and yeah the the quavat kind of falls from his hand his 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 cape is torn and 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 shredded and and he's just seen like this this mass of like radiation and, and kirby crackle and we we get this little moment where he sees the Quavat kind of floating in space, and uh, you know he says how he never felt he had a place in the in the legacy of the Starman lineage, and then he he suddenly realizes that he kind of does because I guess what we're seeing PJ is he's creating and closing the time loop that led to his ancestor finding the Quavat. Hmm. That that was my read on it. Yeah, I think so. I think the same. And as he floats there in the energy, the Quavat floating just just away from him, his suit mercy destructs. And, and he... we we yeah we get a shot of the uh, Scarman, the present day Scarman. Well, no, no, the original Scarman, old man Scarman's observatory in the foreground, and we see a star up in the sky. So Starman blew up. Yeah, and um, so that's present-day Solaris dealt with. However, the threat is not over, and our man is back on the moon and is kind of, I don't know, back in charge, I suppose. So he's yeah. basically saying, like, look, I, I ruined everything. This isn't self-pity. I'm just telling the truth. Yeah. Yeah, he's he, he's got a plan. He says he's 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 got an idea. Solaris sabotaged his time protocols, but Starman's sacrifice left Steel's chronal engine spare. And then Superman's about to try and punch through time, which you know, fair enough. He says uh, maybe I can tap the energy in my cells for one final effort and punch through the time barrier to the eight hundred and fifty third century, because that's what Supermans do. And keen keen readers will remember that Superman one million pointed out that. Um, the time machine that Steel built from uh, technology left over from Eon, the Massacre of Time, uh, it would only take him... It's like a weekend runaround. It would only take him a few thousand years into the, into the future or the past, basically. Yeah. Yeah, it but needs Superman's... He's, he's trying to sort of punch further so they can use it to get further. But they'll have a meeting first because, you know, got to have a meeting. <laughs> and... Well, yeah, because in a weird way, the crisis is over in the present day. Yeah. 
the the virus is gone solaris is gone vandal savage is dealt with so all they need to do now is figure out how to get the jla back and they're in the meeting room aquaman one million is saying look solaris is immensely more powerful in our time your teammates won't be able to do anything against him and john says you're underestimating the league and aquaman basically says no i'm not <laughs> uh yeah but the good news is pj they've got um 851 centuries to work this out or um whatever oh, I- i'm losing track of how many years it is but um <laughs> but everyone's forgotten about huntress who you know there's a reason she's on the team she's quite a she's quite a smart cookie yeah aquaman says that solaris has all the advantages and huntress says not necessarily and then flash one million goes oh no wally and the others they'll be like cavemen against a fighter jet squadron and john just says huntress was talking (laughs) (laughs) and huntress goes it's fighting but it's just a different kind of fighting i have an idea how to save the future and that's the end of the issue. And that's the end of the issue. Well, PJ, there we go. Um, what do you think of that as an issue? That's my favourite issue we've looked at so far. I agree. Yeah. I massively agree. I, I like this issue a lot. Me too. Me too. It's not perfect. I, I've got a couple of small quibbles here and there. Um, again, though, that's partially just the nature of the story and the way it's being told of this giant crossover that we are missing pieces of. But overall, it's a lot of fun. You get some great moments for Batman 1 million, Jean, Starman 1 million, but his is slightly tempered for me by how unearned I feel it is in terms of the story. Great moments in and of themselves, but they just don't feel like they don't have any emotional weight for me the starman moments no and it's such a shame i i almost wish this had just been a jla story i think if 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 the entire focus of the crossover had just been the justice league and the justice legion I think we could have spent more time getting to know these characters because, like, I like Starman because of how he looks. I have no real idea of who he is as a person. Yeah. And his motivations are flimsy. But again, we didn't spend enough time with him for that to be okay because sometimes, you know, people do bad things for really petty, small reasons. And he gets this kind of big epic redemption moment. But again, like, it comes off the back of he was only just accused as a traitor at the end of the previous issue. Uh, And then suddenly he goes from being a traitor to being redeemed. And I know that, like, we all knew he was a traitor, like, issues ago. But I have to assume that not every reader would have read every tie-in issue. It's weird. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. In this book, we get the Starman issue where he basically says, I'm a bad person, hey, and flies off with the kryptonite. And then he doesn't appear again until he just walks into the Watchtower in Justice uh, in JLA 1 million, where we've had several issues in between that. We've had a couple of DC 1 millions. We've had Detective Comics and something else, I think. I can't remember now. Mm. but And he walks into the Watchtower and Batman 1 million goes, you're a traitor. And it, yeah, it 
it's just I like feel it fe- those those yeah. moments feel like it's just hitting a story beat without actually naturally reaching them. I kind of feel like one of the biggest red flags is the night fragment or the lump of surprise, surprise kryptonite. <laughs> um, because it's clearly such an important MacGuffin that like Starman's been effectively absent from the main story for issues because yeah. of that scone, you know, and yet it has no bearing on the present day crisis. The Hourman virus has been resolved. Vandal Savage in the present day has been resolved. So you're literally just left with this, literally this lump of scone that is apparently so important that a character's redemption arc mostly happens off page, in a way. Yeah. Just because he had to be in place to get this stone somewhere. And, oh, I don't know. It feels like... It feels like a, a a holdover from an earlier draft of the of the plot, yeah, which just kind of made its way through to the end, basically. Yeah, so I feel like the Starman scenes are cool, but they're unearned. The Solaris, I enjoy the Solaris stuff. I think we're finally seeing Solaris actually do something. We're getting an idea of what level of a threat Solaris is, and but the fact that the Hourman virus is Solaris's mind is a bit oh hey. Here it is, just just so you know. And again, I feel like that's something that we should have known earlier. Not necessarily the league known, but it's something we could have at least pieced together. Some clues. I don't know. It's just dumped on you very matter-of-factly at the beginning of the issue. I, I think it should be said that, like, lest it sound like, you know, you and I are being too negative about one million. I think, like, on paper... All these concepts sound yes. great. Like I, I, I love a time travel story. I love the idea of a, a future version of the team turning up, of you know villains from two different eras uniting. The fact that Vandal Savage is present in both eras, like all this stuff is great. I just feel like the series is almost a victim of overambition. Like yeah. I, I think I would have loved it a lot more if maybe two, maybe even three plot elements had been cut, and we just focused on you know, maybe the core threat of Solaris and and Vandal Savage with two teams dealing yeah. with it. Yeah, and, you know, but those those gripes aside, Solaris, the, the Hourman virus and Starman, and I guess to a degree some of the Titan stuff with, oh, hey, here's what we did that you didn't see, that I've already had that criticism about other issues. But aside from those smaller elements, this issue is great. It is, as we've said, I, I've great moments in it. The, the Batman interrogating Starman stuff, I absolutely love. Jean battling Vandal Savage's machines is just brilliant. And again, reminds mm. us how awesome Jean is. And the interactions between the JLA and the Justice Legion while they're building Solaris, and then once Solaris is gone and they're still not done with this crisis because, oh, we've got to get the JLA back as well. And I, I love all of that stuff. I think that stuff is the real highlight of the issue for me. And it's the fact that this story has now settled slightly and is trying to deal with fewer things bodes mm. well then for the fourth issue of DC One Million. Oh, absolutely. And and yeah, and it I was interesting that when you, you made the point earlier that like this is the first time we've started to get a feel for Batman One Million's personality. Yeah. And I, I think that's quite telling that like this feels like the first issue, which is kind of like, oh, despite all the action, 
has almost slowed down a bit. And like, um, yeah, it's like I'm starting to like the character of Batman 1 million. Mm. You know, I'm starting to get to know the character of Starman 1 million, even though, of course, now he's dead. You know, I I was just thinking, like, what if this storyline had just been a bit more contained to the pages of Justice League and you hadn't had the Titans, you know, and, and we'd spent time getting to know these teams a bit more because they were both having to work together to deal with a more pressing immediate threat in a way. Do you know what I think DC 1 million could have been perfect for? Rather than having this crossover where you've got every book is involved in some way, so many different writers on it, and then when you collect it like this, you're missing chunks of it and you don't see things happening and everything. Just give Morrison one 12-issue series. Mm. That would have, I think, I think if Morrison had written everything themselves and had just been able to tell their story in one contained 12-issue thing, whether that's 12 issues of the main JLA book or whether that's its own maxi-series, as they called them at the time, hmm. um, that would have been great, I think, because then we could I'll have agree. seen things like how the Titans got out of the Rocket Red suits and you know thing we could have spent more time with starman drop in the traitor three or four issues in instead and oh that's interesting and you know i feel like then that would be a better way to tell this story because i think that's the problem it's trying to tell a story with so many disparate elements over so many different places with different people and creative teams involved that it was always going to feel a bit bitty and disjointed oh yeah and and i know we haven't i know we will get there in time but i mean if you want an example of Morrison doing that very thing better. I mean, we can look ahead to, you know, World War Three, you know, where there's a lot of different subplots. There's a lot of different kind of groupings of characters coming and going. But I think it works as a more cohesive whole. Yeah, than, definitely. Than this. Definitely. The thing I'm one of the one of the things I'm really kind of struck by in revisiting it is how much DC one million feels like a kind of dry run of you know, World War Three in a way. Yeah, yeah. Without trying to give away what comes in World War Three, in case you are reading along with us and this is your first visit. <laughs> yeah, to sorry, Morrison's spoilers. Justice League, but yeah, I feel like there is there's a lot of stuff here that will not necessarily be done again in the same way, but as you say, it's, it's like a rehearsal. There's 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 similar plot threads and beats to World War Three, and but World War Three is a much better story. I am. Um... You know, I've I've been uh, I've I've been trying to um, uh, restart uh, some of my my creativity lately because I've I've not been very creative of late, and uh, so I'm I'm trying to plot um, the next volume of After I think at the moment, and I'm at the point where I'm trying to fit everything in that I want to, and for it to kind of work overall and be and be like cohesive, and. Um, I was thinking about that thing they say about like, what is it? Uh, kill your darlings mm. or, uh, you know, cut what you love. Yeah. And uh, and I'd, I'd always known that in the back of my head and thinking like sometimes you can get too attached to a story point and it stops you seeing the whole. You can't see the wood for the trees. But yes, yeah, so I, I heard someone like explain that the other day in a really interesting way where they said like sometimes an idea is absolutely essential for helping you build a story. Like it's it's essential for helping you get to a better version of the story. Yeah. And then when you're at like the second or third draft, that's when you cut it. 
because you don't need it anymore. And, you know, I'm kind of facing out where I'm thinking like, oh God, I'd always have this awesome idea of this thing I wanted to happen. But now I think it's just getting in the way. And I do wonder how, you know, Mor- I would, I do, I'm not trying to compare myself to Morrison because they're much more accomplished <laughs> than I am. But I just thinking like, I wonder how many ideas Morrison had on the table and, you know, was trying to kind of like fit them all in. Yeah. Whereas like, I wonder if like, if it had been trimmed a bit, it maybe would have been leaner, more and more efficient. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Well, PJ, I mean, uh, if we don't have anything more to add at this point, we have had another another letter, which is kind of relevant, I would say. Yes. Yeah, I've read this one, so... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, P- P- <laughs> yeah, PJ doesn't normally read our fan mail. He, he He's it's beneath him, so... <laughs> <laughs> or John doesn't always forward it on to me. No, that's a lie. I do I do try to forward. Basically, um, I have a very special inbox which PJ isn't permitted to look at and it all comes to me because I'm more important. And <laughs> I'm so sorry, PJ. I do, I, do, I do try to share it all with you. I appreciate that. But this one I have, have had shared with me. Um, well, um, should, I, should I read it out? Yes. Okay, so this comes to us from Chris for Monica Murphy. Um, always a joy to hear from you, Chris. Thanks for getting in touch. Uh, and Chris is saying um, he's going to save his, uh, his thoughts on DC One Million as a whole until we finish our read-through, which, you know... I very much, we do, we do appreciate Chris, uh, and you know your opinions at that point will be welcome, absolutely. But he wants to suggest a slightly different way of considering Solaris, because I know you know you and I, PJ, we've been a, maybe a little critical of how that was presented. Yeah. So Chris says, as you've rightly observed, there is a lot of telling and not much showing why and how Solaris is so terrible. But I'm not entirely sure that this can be avoided. The conceit of DC One Million is that Solaris has been around for tens of thousands of years. As such, it would be near impossible to cherry-pick highlights of the millions of theoretical Solaris stories in order to show how terrible he is. Imagine having four comics to try and show highlights of Lex Luthor's greatest crimes and schemes. That's a monumental task, and he's only been around for 81 years. Yet in those 81 years, he's probably appeared in thousands of stories. Of those thousands of stories, what do you show in order to convince a newcomer that Lex is a supervillain? Now multiply that by 833 centuries worth of stories. It can't be done. So, uh, so basically, what, what Chris is saying in summary is uh, it would be almost impossible to summarize 883,000 plus years worth of theoretical stories to convince us that Solaris is the ultra villain. So, GMOS, the perfect abbreviation, has to tell us because it would be impossible to show us. And he and. Chris was saying, and that's where he's that's the way he sees it anyway. And uh, thank you for your continued hard work on the podcast. You two are great, which is lovely. So thank oh, you, Chris. Yeah, thank you very much. Um, I say before I say I, I understand your point completely. I really do. I do slightly disagree with certain aspects of it though. So here's where I'm gonna come from on this. I think comparing Solaris and Lex Luthor a very it doesn't quite work because yes luther's got that established history and as you say thousands of stories over the years and how do you pick which ones to show morrison invented solaris for this story so while solaris has a fictional history none of it's been touched on yet we don't know what it is and we don't need to either 
So I don't think it's necessarily about Morrison should have cherry-picked from the entire 83,000-year history of Solaris, but I feel like it would have been better if... We've talked about how a lot of the issues feel like they've got wasted pages in them, things that maybe could have been used to greater effect doing something different. How, instead of just like having a long speech bubble where Aquaman tells us, oh, this is why Solaris is bad, have a flashback of a couple of panels to when Aquaman battles Solaris and show us that particular one encounter that Aquaman is talking about there. Because that all comes from Morrison. It's not this legacy character that has this history that you need to cut down. It's just Morrison making stuff up, basically. Mm. Um, so that that's my perspective on it. I, I think that... Um, there is a way in this story where Morrison could have showed rather than told, cut down on the exposition a bit. And, and you know, yeah, flashbacks are a bit of a cop out here and there, but sometimes it is an effective way of, of showing you the danger of something. Show us Solaris killing one of these old supermen as one of the Justice Legion relates the story to us. That's that's what I would have liked to have seen, I think. I think, yeah, it's interesting. I think I think the irony is that Solaris as a work of fiction is is kind of overshadowed by their future version in a way uh, i know it's a very weird way of uh, of phrasing it but like it's a story about time travel hmm. but you look at morrison's own uh kind of bibliography basically like their future work and all-star superman and i think solaris i i feel evidently to morrison means a lot I yeah. really do I really do feel that Morrison has built a personal mythology of Superman uh, has built a very pure and quite quite strong personal universe which we are occasionally allowed to live in which is quite wild <laughs> um that transcends DC reboots and reimaginings and stuff and so across Morrison's work you have Solaris popping up. Solaris was created for DC 1 million and then appears later in All-Star Superman, even though the two chronologies don't make a lick of sense with each other. <laughs> and I think there's something quite uh, iconic and mythological about Morrison trying to create an evil son. Like yeah. he's, he's very, they're, they're very much trying to create the anti-Superman. And I think in a I think in a sad way, I do feel that Morrison's own personal mythology of, of Solaris outshone, if you will, <laughs> the actual story presence of the character. Because you look at something like All-Star Superman and Solaris is menacing. I mean, Solaris does come out of nowhere in, in All-Star Superman, and yet its presence is is menacing and 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 challenging and does feel like a like an apt villain for Superman. And um, I do wonder if Morrison had this incredibly rich mythology in their head, which they, I don't know, I, I feel like they they maybe didn't quite get it all down on the page. Uh, and it's a very rambling way of saying that, like, I have no doubt that Morrison believes very strongly in Solaris and the kind of threat that Solaris poses. But, like, I would have liked, I genuinely would have liked to have seen it a bit more at this point, because... I really don't think like DC has done a lot with Solaris. No, I don't think Solaris has like returned for multiple events and stuff. And I think if Solaris had made more of an impact in this book, the legacy of that would have been that Solaris would have become like a new Lex Luthor, 
suddenly other people would want to use Solaris because their villainy was so kind of compelling. That was a very, very meandering answer, and I'm I'm sorry about that. But yeah, I I think like you, PJ, I would I personally would have liked to have seen a bit more of Solaris on the page here. I think I you can compare it to and. Again, I'm not going to get into spoilers for World War Three here in case, as I say, anyone listening hasn't read it yet and is just reading along with us. But the overall threat in World War Three, which don't forget is Morrison's swan song on JLA as well. That's where their run ends. So it's their final arc. The overall threat, the major bad guy of that storyline, has already been seeded in JLA. There have been references to it and certain moments with it but in a very effective way that sort of just slowly starts to build this air of menace to it it's not people telling us about it it's just small seeds here and there that when it does appear we can go oh that's that and connect it back now i know that morrison's jla run is you know, several years worth of comics and they had a lot more time to seed it in an event book. You don't have that so much. But there are still ways around that, I feel. Like, you have Solaris show up in issue one, but then it is, until this moment here, Solaris hasn't appeared again and it is just a lot of people saying Solaris is bad. And, you know, I get that there are limitations in in event books and the way they're told and how that all works. And... If it if that works for you, fine. That is great. Um, it doesn't work so well for me personally. And I just wish we'd spent a little bit more time with Solaris one way or another in here. And I, again, I completely understand Chris's point of view. And if Chris is able to enjoy this story on that level, fantastic. I'm not the guy to take that away from <laughs> you. Chris, This is if this is your story that works, perfect. Brilliant. I love that. And I'm glad people take pleasure from it. But it's not a high point. For me i do wonder if kind of tying in what into what we were saying earlier whether like the problems as we see them could have been avoided if just the focus of the series had been shifted a little bit because yeah. if you think about it like the first issue of of dc one million ends with future you know future vandal savage and solaris on mars you know in the future and it's like this big setup they're digging something up on mars but but then Solaris effectively disappears from the story. And I do wonder if if this had been a, a smaller, well, maybe not smaller, but like a more focused series, whether, you know, the, the, the primary threats could have been Solaris and Vandal Savage, whereas really you've got the Hourman virus and you've got whatever's going on in the future, which we're not really privy to. And I know that maybe if we'd been reading like the individual issues, we'd yeah. maybe see a bit more of what they're all going through. But my my understanding is that like those tie-in issues are kind of contained in their own way. Like you know, you might see Superman doing something incredible. You might see Wonder Woman doing something incredible. But like you know, take this issue for for example. We've just had Solaris be created in the present day. We know that Solaris is a menace in the future who is apparently bedeviling the future version of the Justice League. Like, what if we saw those events, what if we saw more of that conflict in the future in the pages of this book where our heroes are fighting Solaris? And what if when young Solaris was made in the present day, there was more of a conflict where 
you know, the the remaining league and the Justice Legion had to battle Solaris. Like, as it happens in the span of this issue, young Solaris was created and and then vanquished in a manner of a few pages. Yeah. So, like, once again, Solaris has kind of left the story before they've even really arrived, I feel. Like, I really like Solaris as a character. I, I kind of just wish we'd seen more of them in this story. It's another way where I feel... DC 1 million would have been better served by being its own 12-part series than mm. an event book because then we could have had more time with Solaris. Morrison could have seeded them a bit more effectively. Um, and, you know, again, as I say, I, I loved this issue we read today. I, I genuinely do think it was great. The quibbles I have with it are fairly minor compared to how much I, enjoyment I derived from it. Um but yeah, I, I just feel like there was a, a more effective way of telling this story. And I don't know, it, it almost frustrates me when I'm reading a story or watching a story and I can, I'm can i thinking, okay, I like this, but I can see how you could have done this better. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's... Which again is weird, actually, because I know the two of us would probably wouldn't you know we 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 we're, we're generally quite loath to make suggestions about yes. how you know how to kind of like improve a story because it's you know if the story is what it is you know like choices were made and we respect you know you got to respect the creators behind it but but yeah i think it's more of it like we like what we're seeing but like we're missing bits you yeah. know i i want to i feel like i always feel like the action is happening off panel regardless of what what story I'm reading in this arc and I I just feel that's kind of that's maybe my big problem with with one million like revisiting it um there's a lot of good it's just kind of like it's kind of scattered around it's weird yeah agreed and it's it's certainly weird I it's it's even weird to be kind of you know feeling this way because I know I know we we've talked about it on air and off air but like I think we were both expecting to be more positive about one million like going into it that's the weird thing. Definitely. And I think it's just because, as you say, we're breaking it down more. We're looking at it with a more critical eye than perhaps we have in the past when, you know, I've just read it for pleasure before. This time I'm reading it knowing that I have to talk about it at length in an entertaining manner. Oh, God. <laughs> uh, Semi-entertaining. <laughs> you know, <laughs> no pressure. But it means I actually have to have things to say, so I have to dive into it a bit deeper. And, you know, it... it looking at a work you love this way can be a blessing and a curse because i feel like with the main jla series i found new reasons to love it through doing it this way and looking at it for this podcast dc one million it sort of made the flaws more apparent to me Mm. um but there it is that's that's you know that's the curse of of the critical thinker (laughs) (laughs) i guess the irony is that like um i would still quite happily at a future date probably probably I, i'd need a bit of like water under the bridge i'd need yeah, there to yeah. be a bit of time because <laughs> again i have net i've read this series many many times i have never gone over it in this much detail so it's gonna be a while before my next reread yeah but i would quite happily pick up dc 1 million and read it like you know it's it's a, it's a part of the collection on my shelf and yeah i i enjoy spending time with morrison's voice characters you know and hey you know what you may find yourself in in i don't know 10 years time going 
I'm going to revisit JLA. Oh, there's a good podcast I could listen to while I'm doing so. Get to the DC 1 million bit and go, what the hell were younger John and PJ on about? This is great. <laughs> yeah, to be honest, like this could be on the cusp of, getting, of being like... Um a rediscovered masterpiece sort of thing and we're going to be like wildly out of step with history yeah. hey i've been wrong about many 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 things in my life maybe i'm wrong about this well i've never been wrong about anything so, so we're fine <laughs> um but pj we're, we're gonna have a bit of a, a another weird diversion next uh next issue aren't we yes we are and i would maybe say that this is the weirdest diversion of all of them um, the next issue we're looking at is Resurrection Man 1 million and Resurrection Man is a character I have only ever come across once and that's in this book and I was going to say something stupid there but wasn't Resurrection Man a relatively new character to DC to DC continuity at this time like uh, he, oh, was it Dan was it Dan Abnett am I getting confused I am going to look it up. I'm not if I look it up first. Uh, come on, internet, don't let me down. Uh, uh, yeah, Andy, Andy Lanning, Dan Abnett, and Jackson Geis debuted in Resurrection Man one in 1997. Yeah, so um, Resurrection Man only a year and a half old, basically. Like he was, he was a hot new property at this point. Yeah, and I'm guessing he was cancelled fairly soon after. Oh, yeah, the series was ended in 1999 after 27 issues. I know he got, he was rebooted as part of the new 52 event, yes, but he I was. don't know how long any of that lasted. Like a, like a much, like much of new 52. 13 yeah. issues, the new 52 resurrection man lasted. Yeah. And that's a shame because I think in, in my memory anyway, that's my favorite tie in that we get in this book is the resurrection man one. I remember really enjoying this issue. Yeah, it's kind of fun, and this would certainly be like one of the first times that, like, oh, I don't know, it, it really cement this relationship between Resurrection Man and Vandal Savage. I mean, like, spoilers, I'm getting ahead of myself, but yeah, <laughs> two of two of DC's kind of like leading immortals. Yeah, or well, they're leading immortal, and they're apparently forgotten immortal these days. If you have you read Morrison's Multiversity, no. There is an issue in there which is set in a an alternate universe that's very much inspired by like 1930s pulp action heroes. Oh, okay. And Immortal Man. No, sorry, a resurrection. No, is it Immortal Man? Oh Jesus, have I got it completely wrong? I'm losing track. Immortal <laughs> Man, no, Mr. Immortal is a Marvel. Mr. Character. Immortal is Marvel, yeah, he's Great Lakes Avengers. I sorry, I've got it completely wrong. There's a different DC Immortal, isn't there? There's there's Immortal Man. Yes. Yeah, okay, right. Okay, ignore me then. It wasn't Resurrection Man. But basically, there's a story there where Immortal Man and Vandal Savage both pop up and are like long, long, long rivals from the <laughs> dawn of time. And I'm an idiot because I got my got my immortal heroes confused. So I'm just oh, going to shut John, up. I'm going to shut up like? now, basically. <laughs> but i got to be honest, I'm looking forward to Resurrection Man 1 million. I, I really am. I remember it being a high point of this book. Cool. Yeah, no, it'll be it'll be it'll certainly be a little different, and um, I, I th again, I'm I'm looking forward to it a bit more than say the detective comics tie-in, if I'm honest. Yeah, so. yeah. Well, PJ, on that note, if we have 
if we really have said everything that could possibly said be said about the JLA, he said kind of hanging, uh, you know, leaving that open to be proved right or wrong. We have. We have. Wonderful. Okay. Well, in which case, I think it falls on me to give Gav Mitchell a massive thank you for drawing our uh, incredible cover art. Which leaves me to thank Elliot Red for composing our fantastic theme tune, Justice. And uh, if you're enjoying the show and you like hearing PJ and I kind of raff, you know, waffle on about nonsense, uh, you can find us on social media. Um, our details are in the episode description. And if you wanted to write in, such as, uh, you know, Christopher Monica Murphy did, maybe you can get a fun nickname as well. Uh, the contact details are there as well. We really enjoy hearing from you. Yeah, do do write in because it, I I genuinely love receiving receiving mail, even even if people are disagreeing with me about stuff. Because it's great to have those conversations. I mean this. It's, it's great to have those conversations and look at things critically. And people should like different things and enjoy different things. So, yeah, do write in to tell us we're wrong about stuff too. That's very much... Uh, you know, I, I, I have nothing to add. That's like the perfect kind of like... Uh, um, Mr. Rogers kind of uh, statement there and I'm, I'm very I'm, yeah very much in agreement um, PJ is there anything you'd like to shout about before we wrap up not a thing well on that note uh, I exact time again PJ uh, would you please give us the honours and sign us off in your own unique fashion there's a cloud outside my window that looks like a big pig Thank you.